All right, well, if you are new with us this morning or you've been out for a few weeks, we've spent the last few weeks talking about this idea of, of being one generation away. We saw, as we started the series out, Judges chapter 2, verse 10, this, this tragic statement as Joshua and his generation came to the end of their life, this generation that God had used in such a mighty way. The Bible says this, it says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done in Israel. So it's such a terrible thing to see that God could move in one generation and that generation not prepare the next generation to, to know God the same way. Uh, it happens all the time. And so we've seen how we're one generation from losing the truth. We're one generation from losing faith. We're one generation away from losing the church in our country. But then we also saw how we're not just one generation away from disaster. We're one generation away from God changing the world. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says, To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout, what's it say? All generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is going to be glorified in all generations. That promise doesn't mean he's going to be glorified in all generations in every nation. We can lose him here in America if we do not choose to, to turn our hearts towards him, if we do not choose to follow him. But there is a promise that somewhere on earth there is going to be a remnant. There is going to be a generation in every generation that follows him. And we believe that we get to be a part of that in our day and age. And then last week, after seeing how we're one generation away from changing the world, we saw the forgotten ministry of Jesus, how Jesus comes, and we walked through the book of Matthew, and we saw five instances, there's actually seven, saw these instances of Jesus ministering to kids, and how so many things that we associate with Jesus, a lot of times we forget how important, how critical it was in his eyes to minister to kids. We saw how kids have legitimate problems, they have legitimate challenges, legitimate issues. We saw how Jesus prioritized these children. In fact, in Matthew 21, 16, he quotes the book of Psalms, chapter 8, 2, and says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. God is calling for praise, for worship from this generation of kids, from every generation of kids. There's something special about children in God's heart. So children's ministry was of utmost importance in Jesus's ministry, and it should be of utmost importance to us as well. In fact, we even saw how the enemy freaked out when these kids were worshiping Jesus, how, how Satan recognized there's something happening here as these kids are at the temple and they're singing Jesus' praises. They're recognizing him as the Messiah. Satan knew this is a problem. This is a problem for me. This is going to cause me all kinds of issues. And so he wanted to rise up against that. So on that note, we begin today. And I want to begin and kind of in an odd place, uh, if you will stick with me, this will make sense as we go along. But I want to begin with, with a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is not someone that we often associate with generational ministry, with, with reaching the next generation. But John the Baptist had a, a very specific purpose. The Bible says over and over and over again that John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. It's what we associate with him. This was his ministry. This was his purpose statement. God set him on the earth to prepare the way for Jesus. I'm going to give you one example in scripture, Matthew verse, chapter 3, verse 3. It says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, 
make straight paths for him. So we see this statement that, that Matthew recognizes as he introduces John the Baptist to us, that John the Baptist is called to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark introduces him this exact same way. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke introduces him this exact same way. In the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is actually quoted later on in the book talking about John the Baptist, and he quotes this passage about him. He was sent to be the one to prepare the way for my ministry. And actually in the book of Luke, in the uh, chapter 1, towards the very end of the chapter, Zechariah John the Baptist's father is prophesying. He's worshiping as his voice has been restored, as his son has been born. And as he prophesies and celebrates the birth of John the Baptist, he associates John with this prophecy from the book of Isaiah, that he is sent to prepare the way for Jesus. So six times in the New Testament, it drives home this point. John prepares the way. John prepares the way. John prepares the way. John prepares the way. So if someone was to ask you, what was John the Baptist's purpose? You would say to prepare the way for Jesus. When John comes, Jesus is coming in behind him. John is getting us ready for Jesus to come. You'll see why this is important as we go. In fact, John actually came to fulfill a very specific ministry office. In addition to this specific purpose, he came to fulfill a role, the role of a man named Elijah. In the Old Testament, there's two men who in Jewish uh, eyes rise above all the other Old Testament figures. There's many, many men in the Old Testament who are important. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. David is the king who's going to reign forever. His line is going to reign forever in Israel. But the two men who rise furthest above all the rest are a man named Moses, who you're pretty familiar with, Moses the great deliverer, Moses the man who frees them from slavery, and a man named Elijah, And they both symbolize different parts of the Jewish scriptures. When the Jews refer to Moses, they're referring to the Old Testament books of the law, the first five books, the, laws, the books that came through Moses uh, that tell us basically right from wrong. What is morally right? What is God's will and purpose for us in the way that we conduct ourselves? So Moses symbolizes the law, and Elijah symbolizes the next section of scripture, which we call the prophets. Elijah was the greatest prophet. He was the prophet that, that the Israelites looked to as the standard by which all other prophets are measured. And there's many Old Testament prophecies that say that Elijah is going to come again, that God's going to send Elijah. And that's really interesting because one of the things about Elijah is that Elijah never what? He never died. You guys are good. You are on it today, city church. That's what's up. Elijah never died. And so the Jews, in fact, many of them still to this day, they believe that Elijah is physically coming back. They believe that Elijah himself is going to return. And that's one prophecy that they misunderstood along with many, many others, that, that Elijah is not physically going to return. We're going to see why these prophecies were fulfilled in John the Baptist. Um, Matthew 17, 10 through 13, Jesus says, and this is just one example of him being confirmed as the Elijah in the Old Testament who's prophesied. says the disciples asked him, him being Jesus, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Old Testament teaches that the Messiah is going to come, but before the Messiah comes Elijah. So they're starting to realize, okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah, but we ain't seen Elijah. Elijah hasn't come. How come you're the Messiah, and we haven't seen 
Elijah. The Bible says this. The Old Testament tells us this. Well, Jesus replies, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. Side note, John the Baptist had just gotten his head cut off for the glory of Jesus. He, he followed Jesus. He worshiped Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus, and King Herod came in off with his head. So Jesus says they did everything to Elijah that they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So again, I'm going somewhere with this. I know that you're like, okay, we're talking about generational ministry. Now we're talking about John. Now we're talking about Elijah. Now we're talking about people's heads falling off. Where are we going with this? I promise there's a purpose. But uh, you need to see two things about John the Baptist. First of all, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. Secondly, John the Baptist came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about the return of Elijah. He was not physically Elijah. He did not reincarnate and come from heaven. Elijah's been in heaven the whole time. Uh, but he did come, well, except for at the transfiguration. But Elijah's been in heaven. He didn't come back for, for a long period of time. But John came to fulfill these prophecies. The prophecies of Elijah were a symbolic Elijah, someone who would come and fulfill the role of the prophet. So now that we know these things, that he came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and that John was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, turn to Malachi chapter 4. This is going to be our key text for today. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 is significant for a few reasons. First of all, it is the last chapter of the Old Testament. The book of Malachi is the last Old Testament book that was written. Malachi was the last of what we call the minor prophets, a series of 12 prophets who rose up to, to proclaim the truth of God. At the end of these 12, when Malachi comes, God goes silent for 400 years. God does not speak. He does not show up. He does not perform miracles. God goes silent for 400 years. From the end of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, which is the last verse of the Old Testament, until Jesus uh, is foretold at the very beginning of Matthew as the angel uh, Gabriel shows up, God's silent. Uh, throughout that time. We call this the time between the testaments or the intertestamental period. And so this is the last statement that God makes to his people. The last thing that God wants to say before he sends Jesus. I think there's some real significance in this. And as I got ready to, to prepare this message, actually as I was planning out this series, from the very beginning I had this idea that I wanted to preach on Malachi 4.6. You see, one of my mentors in ministry, pastor who I look up to a great deal, this is like his life verse. This is like the verse that he preached to us over and over and over again. It's the verse that, that opened my eyes to God's heart for youth ministry. If you don't know my story, I was a youth pastor for eight years uh, before I stepped into the pastoral role here, and I still have such a, a magnificent heart for our young people. And this was the verse that God really used to speak this into me. And so I was excited. I'm finally going to preach Malachi 4.6. I haven't done this yet. I'm finally going to show everybody this truth. And, and the statement that was always made that I've always heard is that Malachi 4.6 says that in the last days, God is going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers. How many of you guys have heard something like that along those lines? A few of you. Okay. Well, as I get into my preparation on Tuesday for this message, I had a very awful realization. The Bible didn't say what I thought it said. You ever had that problem? The Bible doesn't say what I think it say, says, or even worse, the Bible doesn't say what I want it to say. Had that problem? 
a few times. Now, Leonard's never had that issue. That probably means he doesn't read the Bible. Uh, but if you're in the Bible, you've come to a point. I'm just kidding, Elsie. I know you read the Bible. Uh, you probably come to a point where, man, the Bible doesn't line up with what I think. It doesn't line up with what I believe. It doesn't line up with what I was taught. And when we come to that point, we come to this crossroads, what am I going to do? And so I have to tell you today, in fact, I have to confess to you today, I spent about two days wrestling with this, thinking I'm just going to preach it the way I was taught it. Man, this is a man of God. I know that his heart was sincere. It's inspired me. It's made such a difference in my life. They're not going to go back and read it anyway. What difference does it make? I'm just going to teach what I was taught. And of course, God wouldn't let me do that. Uh, I was not allowed to, but I do want to confess to you, man, I'm human. And there's times where I come to Scripture and I don't see what I want to see and I want to make it say what I want it to say. But man, we've got to value God's Word. We've got to treat God's Word with an incredible honor, with an incredible value. And, and I want you to see this too. A man of God can miss it sometimes. A man of God can be an heir. This doesn't mean that my pastor uh, hasn't been used by God. It doesn't mean that he's a sinner or anything. He just missed it. On this verse, he just misinterpreted it and misapplied it. And I guarantee you, I've done the same thing. I guarantee you, any pastor you've ever sat under has done the same thing. This is why it's important for you to be in the Word for yourself. I'm just a man. I am not God. No pastor, no matter how great, no matter how magnificent their ministry is, stands in the place of God. We as God's people have got to be in God's Word for ourselves. We've got to be testing it. We've got to be looking to it and making sure that it lines up. If it doesn't, that doesn't mean that man... Uh, we, we go on a rampage, we go on a rebellion, but it doesn't mean, if I screw it up, I, I'm telling you, I'm giving you an open door. If I preach something and it's not what, what the Bible says, come to me in confidence. Come to me one-on-one and show me. Help me to see it, because I promise it'll happen. I'm human. Uh, thankfully, in this instance, it didn't. Thankfully, in this instance, I, I was able to study up and go back and read it and, and, and see what it actually meant so that I can bring you what God's Word actually says. So Malachi 5 or chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I want you to see what this actually says because the good news is it's so much even better than what I thought it said. The application for us is so much greater, uh, so much deeper. Uh, it required me to tell you a little bit about John the Baptist, which I wasn't planning on doing. But now that we've got that out of the way, I believe God's going to speak in a great way. Malachi 4, 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament, says this. It says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Who's that? John the Baptist, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Verse 6, he, he being Elijah, not God, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Pretty powerful statement for us. God says, before the great day of the Lord, before the Messiah shows up, I'm going to send a messenger. My messenger's name is Elijah. And he's going to come with the message to prepare the way for the Lord. And as he prepares the way for the Lord, the hearts of the fathers are going to turn to the children. And in response, the hearts of the children are going to, re- to turn to the fathers. But see, I always thought that this was a God thing. I always thought that this was something God was going to do and it was a day yet to come. It's not. This prophecy has already been fulfilled. But I always thought that God was going to to basically force this to happen. The sovereign God was going to come in and start turning hearts. 
That's not what it says. It says that Elijah Elijah being John the Baptist is going to come and preach a message. And that message, in response to that message, God's people are going to turn their hearts towards the next generation. And in response, the next generation is going to turn their hearts back to the fathers. And then here's how we know that this isn't just a God thing, that we have a part to play in this. We have a choice in this. Because then he says, and if not, then I'm going to strike the land with a curse. In other words, this is not some move of God that is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to start inflicting things and forcing things and, man, it's just going to happen. What it means is God's message is going to come and when God's message comes to prepare the way for Jesus, when the the way is prepared for the Lord, the natural response should be the thing that God is looking for, the thing that God wants to see is the hearts of the fathers turn to the children and the children are going to turn their hearts to the fathers. That's what's supposed to happen. But if it doesn't, God's not going to be happy. God's not going to bless us. And so there's a lot, there's so much in this passage for us to see this morning. In fact, I have six things that I want you to write down. We're going to move through most of this pretty quickly. But six things from Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 that I believe that God has shown me in relation to what I would call generational ministry. Like I told you last week, I challenge you, spend this week in prayer. Ask God, God, you have a part for me to play in Kid City. You've got these yellow cards in your seat. Anytime today is God speaking to you, if you want to go ahead and fill that out, there's options on there for different age groups. Let me say this too. You're not signing away the rest of your life. All we're asking for is a a three-month trial. Three Sundays, you're going to fill in in Kid City on one Sunday in April, one Sunday in May, one Sunday in June. That's all we're asking for. Try it out. See what God is doing in there for you. And maybe you got, we give you the wrong age group and we need to tweak that a little bit. Maybe you come out of it and you say, man, kids are not for me. This is not my ministry. That's okay. But I believe that each of us has a part to play. And maybe it's not as a teacher. Maybe it's doing check-in. Maybe it's not in Kid City. Maybe it's with the 662. There's an option on there for you. The 662, if you don't know, is our 6th through 12th graders. We meet every Wednesday night. Uh, But I believe that all of us have a part to play in reaching the next generation. So here's six things from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Number one thing that we need to see is that God's heart burns for generational restoration. Before God could send Jesus, he had to send someone to turn the hearts of the older generation to the younger generation. This had to happen. It matters to him. Now, this has been fulfilled. The specific prophecy was filled in a specific time. However, this prophecy tells us, gives us a peek at the heart of God. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if it was important before Jesus came that the hearts of the older generation turned to the younger generation, I believe that God's heart is timeless. The prophecy was a specific time, but God's heart is timeless. And just as God wanted that generation to turn their hearts to the hearts of the children, God desires this generation to turn its heart towards the future, to turn its heart towards the next generation. We see God's heart so clearly in this passage now. It says specifically that he wants to turn the hearts of the fathers. Why fathers? Why does it not say parents? Why does it not say mothers? Is this just more example of, of ancient sexism? Is this an example of how God likes men more than he likes women? Not at all. Let me put it to you this way. If the passage said he's going to turn the hearts of the mothers back to the children, you would laugh, right? What mother do you know who needs her heart turned back to her children? Right? Like mothers have a natural heart for their kids in a way that that many times fathers don't. Women are better at this than men are. We can just say that. 
uh, and we are, are pregnant. We don't have any children yet. But I already see my wife is talking about the pregnancy more than I am. She's thinking about the pregnancy more than I am. Her mind is on this, this child more than mine is. And it's not that I don't love our baby. It's not that I'm not praying for our baby. But she's got a heart for our kid. And, and I think that, that every mother has this naturally in, in an incredible way. So God didn't have to send somebody. John didn't have to come to turn the hearts of the mothers back to the kids. I mean, the kids already had mom's heart. But he had to send somebody to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. I think it's very important for us to recognize this. Second thing that we see in this passage is not only does God's heart burn for generational restoration. Secondly, when the father's hearts don't turn to the children, there's a curse. Not a fun one to preach, not an exciting one to preach. I like to think of myself as a blessing preacher, not a curse preacher. I like to think of myself as somebody who's preaching uh, the, the blessings of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the positive side of God. I'm not, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone guy. That's just not who God has called me to be. I'm not knocking anybody who is, but that's just not the way I see it, man. I see God as a loving father. At the same time, I've got to preach the word. I've got to preach what the Bible says. And in this case, the Bible says... When the hearts of the fathers don't turn to the children, God's got a problem with that. God is going to have some consequences. It says that there's going to be a curse upon the land. The nation is going to suffer when the children don't have the hearts of the father. And I believe that we see this right now. See, we have a fatherless generation in America. Some of you are shaking your heads. You're teachers. You work in the school system. You work around kids. You're in neighborhoods where you see this taking place. But we have a fatherless generation. In fact, I looked at some stats this week. Uh, just 50 years ago, 5% of children in America were born out of wedlock. 50 years ago, 5%. Right now, that number is all the way up to 40% of children who are out of wedlock. 33% of children right now growing up in America live in a home with no male. Not just not their father, not just not a stepfather, just no man in the house whatsoever. And we know how many couples are living together, but just no man in the house, 33% of kids right now. There's a fatherless generation that we see, that we're experiencing. There's a void. Uh, my wife and I this week were discussing some of the young men who have come through the 662. We've been blessed with some incredible young people who've come through our, our youth ministry. Man, you've seen them in many different places in many different ways. And, and I went through and I counted up eight different young people who have come through our ministry, who have come to me and said, I think I have a call into full-time ministry. I think God is calling me to something different. I might have forgotten somebody. I might have overlooked somebody, but at least eight that I know of. In fact, I just realized one that I forgot. So there's at least nine. Out of those nine, two of them adopted, never met their father. Five of them, children of divorce, and they vary from strained relationship with dad to zero relationship with dad whatsoever. One of them, whose dad was uh, in the home, uh, but not in church, but he had a dad in his life. One of them, whose dad was in the home, had him in church, was connected, a father in his life, and then after he went to college, mom and dad got a divorce. So out of nine, the best example I can give you is a young person whose dad doesn't go to church or a young person whose dad does go to church, but mom and dad got a divorce after he left the house. That's the best example. I could tell you the heartbreak, the horror that, that some of these young men have gone through with the father void in their life. I'm not a great man. But, man, I can tell you that, that these young people, some of them have latched on to my ministry, to my role in their life because they didn't have somebody else. 
You don't have to be the greatest guy. You don't have to have it all figured out. If you'll just step in and be there for a young person who doesn't have somebody, they will grab a hold of what you're giving them. They'll take every ounce that they can get because it's a fatherless generation. And because of that, and I can tell you statistic after statistic of the probabilities of what happens when there's not a father in the home, of the, the increased, I believe it's 80% of men who are in jail uh, come from homes that didn't have a father. The, the, the probabilities are astronomical. When you consider, remember, it's only one-third right now, and it's increasing, who don't have a dad in the home, but 80% of the people who are in prison didn't have a dad at home. So the, the probability is like four times more likely if you don't have a dad at home that you're going to end up in prison than you do. And I could tell you stat after stat after stat that would break your heart. I didn't come today to just inundate you with information and statistics, but I want you to know our land is under a curse because of a fatherless generation. The word of God is true. And I don't mean it's under a curse as in God is speaking out against us. I'm saying that, that we've heaped a curse upon ourselves. Because we're raising a generation of people who don't have a dad. And they need a dad. And I'm not saying if you don't have a dad today that this means you're going to end up in prison. Man, I'm telling you, I've seen God use some incredible, incredible young people who've got a fathering void. But somebody's got to step in and be that father. Somebody's got to step in and love on that person. Somebody's got to step in and stand in the gap and be that role model for that young person. I believe he's calling you. Male, female, he's calling you to be involved in the life of a student. He's calling you to get involved in the life of a child. He's calling us as a church to have a heart for this generation because if we don't, the curse is only going to increase. It's only going to get worse. The things that happen in our nation, they're not going to get any better unless we respond to the word of God and the hearts of the fathers start to turn back towards the children. If that doesn't happen, it's not going to get better. But if it does happen, there's no limit to what God can do. We've got to turn our hearts to the next generation. Um, I, w- I want to say this too real quick. I-, I just want to say thank you to some men who served in our youth ministry alongside me. Me and Tim Steed, thank you for you. Cody Rogers, thank you for your influence. Thank you for, for what you've done in the hearts of our students and the lives of our students. Going back a long way is Jamie Doyle served faithfully in our youth ministry. Leonard Cochran, faithfully in our youth ministry. Today, young men, Vince Carlisle, Josh Newman, stepping up and serving in our youth ministry and being a father to a student who needs one. Man, that's that's an incredible thing. And that's not to say that, I know last week I mentioned the guys who are serving in Kid City. I am not saying we don't value the women who serve in our ministries at all. Please don't hear that. Thank you to all the women who serve in Kid City and all the women who serve in the 662. But there's something about a guy who gets in the life of a kid. There's a value to that that cannot be duplicated, that cannot be replaced. It doesn't mean that women don't have an incredible role in the lives of our students, but most of our kids have a mom. Most of our kids have a, have a woman who is there to model for them what it means. Not all of them. My, my brother and sister grew up without a mom. My, their mom left when my sister was nine months old. My brother was two years. I know it happens. I've experienced it. I've seen it. But it's much, much less frequent than the people who grew up without a dad. There's a curse that comes with it. Uh, Next on our list, we see that generational restoration prepares the way for Jesus. Generational restoration prepares the way for Jesus. Remember Malachi 4, 5, and 6. God says, I'm going to send Elijah. I'm going to send John the Baptist, the one who prepares the way, and he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is the order that God has for it, that when we turn our hearts, 
when, when, when the hearts of the fathers return to the children and the children's response return back to the fathers, it prepares the way for Jesus' presence to show up. It's a pretty big deal. The more you want more Jesus in your school, you want more Jesus in your workplace, you want more Jesus in your family, you want more Jesus in our church, sign me up for all those things. I need more Jesus in my life. The formula that God has laid out is, man, when fathers turn their hearts to the young people, that's when Jesus is going to show up in a way that we've never seen before. That's when he's going to show up in a way that, that we've never experienced. It's going to, when he's going to show up in a tangible way. It doesn't mean Jesus isn't in your life now. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't value what's going on. I'm not saying that. But there's an increase. There's something that happens when the hearts of the fathers turn to the children. We saw it last week, Matthew 18, 5. Jesus says, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. When we welcome Jesus, when we make the way for Jesus, when we open our hearts to the next generation, we're welcoming Jesus. It's a powerful, powerful thing, important for us to understand. Stand. Number five thing that we see here, this generational restoration, it starts with men. It starts with men. doesn't mean women aren't involved. doesn't mean young people don't have a part to play. But it starts with men. I believe, I'm old school, I believe that God called men to be leaders. I believe that's the responsibility he's put on us. I believe when Eve ate the fruit and God showed up in the garden, God didn't start calling out for Eve. He started calling out for Adam because Adam was the one who was responsible. It was Adam's mistake. And so a lot of times we like to blame women. We like to say women caused all this mess. God never put it on Eve. Never once in Scripture does God blame Eve. He holds Eve accountable for her own mistake. She has a curse that comes, but he holds Adam accountable. He says, you're the leader. You're the one who I told this to. You're the one who I put in charge. You're the one who I'm holding accountable. It starts with men. We see it all the time, the, the void in so many people's lives when they don't have a man. And yet we also see, man, when a man will step in, when a man will be a dad, when a man will assume responsibility, the things that God does in their life. Notice it doesn't say God's going to turn, or that, that when Elijah comes, his message is going to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the fathers back to the children. It's not on the children to start this thing. It's not on the next generation to fix it. A lot of times we can look at the next generation and say, well, they got this problem and this problem and this problem and they got this bad attitude and this bad work ethic and, and this and this and this and probably all of that is true. But it's not on them to fix it. It's on the fathers to fix it. When the fathers take the first move, when, when the older generation of men moves towards the hearts of the students, then they're going to come back around. But if they don't, it's not going to happen. The kids aren't going to take the first step. It's not the way that God has ordained it. It doesn't mean on an individual level that, that a kid can't come to God without a dad in their life. I'm not saying that at all. It happens all the time. But there's something supernatural that God has ordained when the hearts of the fathers turn to the children. It's on men to make the first move. So if you're a dude here today, can I just tell you, man up. Can I just tell you, God's got a responsibility for you. God's got a purpose for you. We like to look at children's ministry as women's work. It's not. It's not. doesn't mean women don't have a part to play in it. Absolutely they do. I praise God for faithful women. If we didn't have women in our children's ministry, we wouldn't have a children's ministry. Thank you, ladies. Y'all are awesome. But God's calling us. He's calling men to get involved in the life of a kid. He's calling men to turn their hearts towards the children. And we've got a few awesome men who serve faithfully in Kid City. Dwindle's in there this morning. His first time. Pray for Dwindle, man. He's, he's, he's faking his way through it. I know he's doing awesome. I know that our kids are blessed by it. I'm not saying we don't have men, but I'm saying God's placed a call on us as men to care about children. It, doesn't, it starts with us. It starts with us. Last thing 
as we get ready to close it, I want to turn your attention to one last passage, John chapter 21. If I haven't convinced you yet, as we walked through Matthew, as we looked at Malachi, I've got one last passage that I hope is going to persuade you God's priority, his purpose, his calling for us to turn to this generation. In John chapter 21, Jesus already died and he's risen again. And the disciples are out on a boat. Jesus, uh, as he sees them out on the boat, they've been out fishing all night. Jesus builds a fire on, the, on the, the beach. And they see Jesus from a distance. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he swims to Jesus. I don't know what kind of sorry boat they had that him swimming was faster. But he's swimming to Jesus from the boat. And so he gets to Jesus before any of the other disciples do. And he runs up to Jesus. And Jesus and Peter sit down, and they have a one-on-one, heart-to-heart talk. And if you remember what happened with Peter right before Jesus was crucified, Peter fulfilled Jesus' prophecy. He said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter says, never. I would never deny you. I would never fail you. I've got your back until the very end. And then dudes show up with swords and take Jesus off. And all of a sudden, Peter becomes a coward. And he denies Jesus three times. And he's hurt. He feels like he's just let Jesus down. He feels like a failure. He feels like, how could you ever use me again? And so this is what we, we see. Bible scholars would say this is Jesus' restoration of Peter. Remember, Peter was the one who made the proclamation. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says, absolutely. God's revealed this to you, not man, not flesh. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. So on the rock, on the foundation of Peter and Peter's faith, Jesus is going to build the church. Just a few days later, just, just a, a few weeks later, actually, the day of Pentecost comes. The same Peter who was ashamed of Jesus, he goes out and he preaches in the streets and 3,000 people get saved. Church grows from 120 people to 3,120 people. Just like that, through the foundation, the rock of Peter. God does something through Peter, but it only happens because of this restoration. This is such a, a key conversation. John 21, verse 15 through 17, our last three verses of the day. It says, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Why would you ask me that? You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. You know my heart. You know that I'm a failure. You know that I'm messed up, but you know that I love you so much. You know that I'm so thrilled to see you. I'm so excited to be able to spend time with you. Why would you even ask me this? And then what does Jesus say to him? Very famously, he says, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. I'm going to build my church on you. I'm going to build the church of Jesus Christ. And the foundation I'm going to build it on, first and foremost, is I need you to feed my lambs. Conversation continues. Verse 16. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. This is going to happen three times. Jesus is going to ask him, do you love me? Three times he's going to say, yes, you know that I love you. Three times Jesus is going to tell him to do something. First time, feed my lamb. Second time, take care of my sheep. Third time, take care of my sheep. What's going on here? Well, first of all, Peter denied Jesus three times. So Jesus restores Peter three times. Three times he's calling affirmation that you love me. And then he gives him a commission. Three levels of commission. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. But before my sheep, before I take care of my sheep, he says, feed my lambs. What's a lamb? Baby sheep. This is not hard, right? We all see where this is going. We all see where we're going to end up here. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Tim, would you go and grab our kids for us, please? Thank you very much. We're going to bring our kids in today. We're going to end service praying over our kids from Kid City. Uh, and we're going to bring them down front, and we're going to pray God's protection, his, his purpose over each and every one of them as we get ready to wrap up. But I want you to see Jesus 
in his conversation as he prepares the person who he's going to preach through. And 3,000 people get saved to create the church. At the very formation, the first thing Jesus says is, I need you to feed my lambs. The lambs got to come first. doesn't mean that the sheep aren't important. He says the sheep twice. He only says the lambs once. So at least one-third of our priority, our focus, needs to be on the lambs. As your lambs come in, they're, they're going to come. You guys go ahead and c- come find your parents. If your parents aren't here, if, uh, your teachers can just bring you down to the front couple rows. Uh, they can just sit on your lap real quick. We're almost done. Come on in, guys. Let's welcome our kids' city to our auditorium. Come on. If you can help them find their kids. If you want to go ahead and grab yours, feel free. Uh, I know this is a little bit less organized than we like, but, man, sometimes kids aren't as organized, right? But they're worth it. Our kids are worth praying for. Here's what I'll say. We need to do this more often. I've been pastor for two years. We've not brought our kids in and prayed over them yet. I'm sorry. We need to pray over our kids more often. We need to prioritize them more, and we're going to turn our hearts back to the children. And one way, let me say this as we're about to wrap up. One of the best ways that you can turn your heart towards anybody is to start praying for them. You got somebody you can't forgive. You got somebody who's hurt you in the past. You can't love them. You can't want good things for them. One of the best ways that your heart will turn is if you start praying for them. If you start going before God for them. If you start asking God to do something for them. Sometimes our our mouth has to lead our heart. Sometimes our mouth has to step out. The Bible says that the, the tongue is a rudder of the ship. It turns the ship. And so if your heart, right now, if you're an, uh, an adult, you're a man, you're a woman, and your heart isn't for the next generation, we're talking about all this stuff, and you're kind of like, ah, whatever. Uh, this isn't that big of a deal to me. This, is, this isn't my thing. I know my ministry. This isn't my ministry. I want to challenge you. Start praying for kids. And as you start praying for our kids, if you don't have any of your own, start praying for somebody else's. Start praying for your neighbor's kids. Start praying for the kids in Kids City. Start praying for your cousins, nephews, nieces, grandkids, whatever it might be. You start praying for them. Watch what kind of heart God gives you for the next generation. We've got to turn our hearts to the children. Fathers, we've got to turn our hearts to the children. So here's what I want to do. Uh, if you are a dad or a mom and you've got your kid with you, would you bring your child down front? Right now, we're going to bring them down here and we're going to pray over them. I don't care how much noise they make. I don't care if they cry. It's okay. Bring them down front. The rest of us, after our our parents come down, if you'll come in and feel behind them, we're going to pray over these kids, man. Uh, Here's what I would say. Maybe lay your hand on a parent rather than on the kids so we don't freak our kids out. Uh, but, But we're going to pray. God's protection. We're going to pray that God uses these parents. Come on, if you would, I'm going to ask our whole church to come down. We're going to seal this. Our hearts are going to turn towards our children today. Praise God, praise God. Oh, by the way, number six, I almost forgot our last point here. Jesus is looking for men and women who will feed his lambs. All right? He's looking for men, he's looking for women who will feed his lambs. Uh, You've got that sheet in your seat after we pray over these. If you haven't yet responded, if you'll go back and fill that out, if God is leading you to do this. Uh, If you're not a member of our church, you do have to join City Church. Go through Next Steps. We'd ask you to do that. But you can get signed up for Next Steps right there on the sheet. We're going to pray over our kids. If you would, just just reach your hand to a child right now. If if there's not one within range, just put your hand on the person in front of you. We're going to make a chain. We're going to believe God to protect these kids, to use these kids, to give them a heart.